0: From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, with the election year underway, lawmakers are considering more changes to state election law. Several proposals make it clear Republicans still believe Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud. AJC reporter Mark Nisi will join us with a look at what may be coming.
1: I'm Greg and then we'll hear from two Democratic legislative leaders about the measures they hope to pass and those they want to block.
2: I'm Bill Nygut. I know from long experience that being on the road covering presidential campaigns can be some of the most exciting and grueling work a journalist can do. Today, we'll hear Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein talk about their plans for hitting the road as presidential contests get underway in a little more than a week.
0: We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia.
3: Ocean Breeze
0: Guys, welcome back to another exciting day in Georgia politics. It's finally 2024, which means it's a presidential election year. So I feel like the adrenaline just already starts to just ramp up right away.
1: Patricia, I know we had our own little meeting the other day talking about all the excitement coming up in the next, just in the next couple of weeks. And we, we just mapped out our plans for Iowa, New Hampshire, and a little bit of South Carolina. And then we even cast ahead to the Republican and Democratic National Conventions this summer. We have so much to do.
0: We did. We're going to talk about it a little bit later in the show about what exactly our plans are for the um, caucuses and the primaries. But, Bill, right before the show started – You showed us proof that this is not your first rodeo. It's not even close to being your first rodeo.
2: I'm writing a column for the Friday uh, newsletter, and maybe for the paper we'll see, uh, about the fact that uh, (laughs) I realized that I covered my first political campaign, presidential campaigns, 40 years ago, and a, a few years less than that covered Joe Biden's first presidential campaign and so i'm writing a column about joe biden then and joe biden now (laughs) and you had proof what was the proof oh yeah i've got a little i've I've got the 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 press pass that they gave out when we were on the announcement tour. the announcement tour itself which i won't go into now because we got many things to talk about was very poignant because it referred back to the tragedy in which he lost his first wife and daughter and people will be able to read about it uh, i hope in the uh Days ahead.
0: Yes. I don't know if you thought you'd still be covering Joe Biden as president <laughs> definitely 40 definitely years later, but <laughs> politics have a funny way of being totally unpredictable. Well, speaking of unpredictable, more than three years after the 2020 elections and after multiple statewide recounts, audits and court cases here in Georgia confirmed President Joe Biden's victory here, <laughs> some Republicans remain suspicious about the state's election laws and infrastructure. And even if they're not suspicious of it, they are talking about continuing to make changes to it. So to join us today, the expert in all things election law, election changes, et cetera, is AJC's Mark Nisi. He's here to here here to tell us about what kind of changes we think we might start to see from the legislature when the session gavels in starting on Monday. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Hello. Good to be here.
0: Hello. We always love having you here. So, Mark, you had a piece in the AJC yesterday that goes into a good bit of detail of the kinds of changes that Republican lawmakers in particular might be considering um, to the election law. This follows uh, a huge overhaul of election laws in 2021, but it looks like they're not done yet. Tell us a little bit about the most important things you think we should be paying attention to.
4: Sure, it's hard to tell what will rise to the surface, but certainly Republican legislators have been very concerned about election security and about Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's oversight of elections. And after last month's state election board meeting where the board declined to open an investigation into the Secretary of State, the legislature could consider giving the state election board greater powers to investigate Raffensberger and perhaps other state officials. So that will be one priority, perhaps. Um, Certainly I believe it's likely that Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones would support such an effort. He's been a critic of the Secretary of State and many other legislators have as well. So that's one item. We also have two upcoming vacancies on the state election board that the general election that the general assembly may fill one by the general assembly as a whole the other by the senate we'll have to watch to see who they install there you know are are the next appointees going to be lawyers and experts or are they going to be more activists and that could certainly influence what direction we go. And then there will be many, many other discussions about paper ballots and QR code readers and polling places so voters can verify their ballots. There could be a drive to eliminate no excuse absentee voting. There could be efforts to eliminate runoffs or allow public inspections of paper ballots from the 2020 elections, or even allow voters to cast a ballot by hand rather than by touch screen. So all of these issues have been discussed before. Many of these bills are still alive from last year's legislative session.
1: Hey, Mark, all these election-related proposals, are they driven more by Republican angst over the 2020 election results or a genuine desire to shore up potential vulnerabilities in the state election system?
4: My perception is that Republican legislators hear from their constituents. They hear Republican concern about election security. And when they can't answer their questions, when they say, oh, you make a good point or, oh, that is something that's worrisome, then it becomes a priority for them. So they are very much responding to their voters. Many of them are um, some of the more conservative supporters of Donald Trump who think something was wrong with the presidential election, and certainly the election, there were three recount, three vote counts, uh, two re- an audit, a recount, an original vote count, and many, many investigations that have not found any significant fraud. But still, you know, there are always more concerns about elections, always more efforts to try to improve security, to try to lock things down, to try to make sure that only legitimate voters are voting based on concerns that there are illegitimate Mm -hmm. voters voting, but we have not seen all but a tiny handful of illegitimate voting confirmed by the state election board and state investigators. But there is this belief out there that it's much bigger that, that
2: the government has failed to uncover the fraud. Mark, talk a little bit, if you would, please, about the potential for there to be a bill eliminating, I think I read in your article, general election runoffs, not, not all runoffs. First of all, if I got that correct, and if so, what's the reason that they feel it's, uh, that eliminating general election runoffs is uh, important at this point?
4: Well, sure. Georgia is one of only about three states that still has runoffs after general elections when no candidate wins a majority. As we saw, especially in the 2021 U.S. Senate runoff and early voting in that December, it was a huge strain on voters, on candidates, on everyone. It was... It was a very contentious runoff. It was a nine-week second campaign between the November 2020 election and the U.S. Senate runoffs that decided which party would control the U.S. Senate. And ultimately, for the first time in quite a few years, Democrats won a runoff. And so that was a turn of the tide. And then, you know, in the 2021 Georgia voting law, the runoff period was shortened from nine weeks to four weeks, and that became an issue again in 2022, if you may recall, when Senator Warnock was running for re-election, and because of the way the calendar lined up, there was a big dispute that went to the Georgia Supreme Court over whether to allow Saturday voting, and ultimately the Supreme Court did allow saturday voting and you know four weeks is a really tight time frame um to really certify an election and create new ballots and send out new absentee ballots and put on early voting and count everything again nine weeks was a chaotic longer period of a second round it was like double overtime condensed into one overtime, <laughs> right? And, you know, I think we've heard from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He wants to eliminate general election runoffs. And we have a bill from Democratic State Representative Cyber Draper that would eliminate general election
2: runoffs if at least one candidate receives 45% support. Mark, what what I think is interesting about this is I go back in this, uh, a little bit of in, into history on this. In 1992, Democrat Weich Fowler and Republican Paul Coverdale were in a general election runoff. Coverdale, the Republican, won that election. And Democrats came back when they were still in control of the legislature in the following session and lowered the threshold for winning an election, in, in a general election, to some, to 45% of plurality instead of a majority. And that ended up causing them even more problems than it solved.
4: <laughs> yeah, what we know, I mean, certainly that did happen 20-something years ago. Um or was it even longer, something like that? Um, but you know, what we see in most other states is they're ready to be done with it after one election, right? Um, it isn't universally true. Again, we saw in 2020, you know, Republicans, Purdue and Leffler, held a lead, not majority, but they held a lead in the general election. And then it was the Democrats who won in the runoff. But generally speaking, the leader in the first round wins in the runoff as well. Um, runoffs are generally, don't don't usually change the results, but there is that one notable <laughs> exception from 2020. So I don't know, I what we saw in last year's general election, assembly legislative session is there was no consensus on this right it was really hard and it wasn't didn't fall on partisan lines um there was a general feeling among legislators that these runoffs are a pain and that it would be fine and good if we did something about it but you know what to do about it Um, And there's also, you know, I remember talking with majority leader Steve Gooch, who said, I kind of like the system we have, right? It requires a candidate to get a majority in a election. Of course, the counterpoint to that is that no candidate um, in a competitive election will ever get a majority in a statewide race, because think about it, like what? 50, 40% of voters don't turn out, right? Is it really a majority if you have, you know, 50 to Mm -hmm. 60% turnout rates? So, you know, it's a a policy decision. Ultimately, legislators will have to weigh whether it's worth the hassle of having another election or if perhaps the system we have is just fine and create that extra work for voters to come back in a runoff and runoffs again are always lower turnout than the original election.
0: So we are here with the AJC's Mark Neese. We were talking about upcoming proposals to potentially go in and continue to make changes to Georgia's election laws as the General Assembly gavels back into session next Monday. Now, Mark, probably the proposal I hear the most about from Republican activists is moving elections to paper ballots. Um, what is the likelihood that there would actually be a bill uh, that could be considered to make that change? I mean, I hear this. In GOP uh, county meetings, I saw a huge billboard in Glenn County for no reason in particular. It just says switch to paper ballots. You know, I, where is all of this coming from and what, what are the chances it might actually get considered?
4: Well, I think it will certainly be considered, I don't know about the chances of it passing, right? Um, You know, recall, it was just in 2019 that our Republican-controlled General Assembly spent $150 million to buy this new voting system. And now we're talking, um, what, less than five years later of discarding it, but that's certainly possible um, because there is concern about the security of our voting machines and also more deeply just fundamental distrust of electronic voting in large part perpetuated by candidates who have lost and say, well, I I lost, so I don't trust the results. but in the background, too, we have a major election security trial starting in federal court on Tuesday. And that's the one of the key arguments in that case is that these electronic voting machines are not safe and secure. And it's interesting that this case has been pending since 2017. It's most of the plaintiffs in that case are more left leaning rather than conservatives. And so, um, you know, it's possible the judge has said she's not going to order the state to use paper ballots filled out by hand but she didn't say she couldn't order the state not to use its current voting system mm-hmm. right she could find our voting system to be fundamentally unsafe and insecure and, and the result of that would be default going to some form of paper ballots you know it could be emergency ballots it could be who, who knows so i think it will be discussed you know it's interesting that senate ethics chairman max burns he floated a bill that would have converted the state to some form of paper ballots but then he did not file that bill so he made it public it is not currently pending legislation it seems like maybe he backed off a little bit but there have been committee votes on this issue in the last couple of years there are a certain substantial number of legislators who feel like paper ballots would be a better option
1: mark i'm glad you mentioned that trial because you'll be spending the opening week of the legislature, balancing between covering the first days of the legislative session and this this monumental trial that could lead to significant changes with Georgia voting law. But I wanted to also ask you about the other big issues, the other big questions you're watching for the session that starts on Monday, because it strikes me that lawmakers have a lot of unfinished business to do. And you've written about some of those uh, those outstanding debates, particularly the, the legislation to make anti-Semitism a hate crime.
4: Absolutely. And I'll talk about that but briefly, I just want to plug our coverage. We've been rolling out pieces every day this week in the AJC.com and in the print edition about all these top issues by some of our best capital reporters. We do have a very large team covering the legislature, and you can expect a lot of these big debates. So I encourage all everyone to go online and read the paper about some of these top topics but yes one of the ones i wrote about elections i also wrote about anti-semitism bill that bill failed to pass last year um, about how to define anti-semitism right the fundamental concept is we have a hate crimes law in georgia that can assess greater penalties on someone if they commit a crime that is motivated by some form of bias or hate toward a racial or religious group but you know, religion is broadly in the hate crimes bill, but it doesn't specify anti-Semitism. And so that's what this debate is about. But how do you define anti-Semitism? You know, to anti-Semitism, it goes beyond religion. It's also cultural and ethnic, right? And so what we have seen in bills pending in the legislature is trying to adopt this international definition by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. um, into state law. And the definition itself is somewhat benign, but it's accompanied by these examples. And many of the examples of what could constitute anti-Semitism include potential usages of criticism of Israel as a Jewish state, or Israel, if you say that Israel is not a legitimate endeavor you know or that it it is not it should not be a jewish state I'm generalizing here that is not the details of what the examples say but the point is that the examples repeatedly mention israel and that's a hot topic right if criticism of israel could be interpreted as criticism of jewish people could the anti-Semitism law be interpreted to crit- to curtail mm. speech against Israel? So that's the hang up, you know, is how do we define anti-Semitism? Should mentions of Israel even be a part of this debate? Is there a way to confine it to criticisms of Jewish people? But of course, there are criticisms of Israel that are meant to show hate toward Jewish people, right? Criticisms of Israel in depending on the context, can be interpreted as criticisms of Jewish people. So it can constitute anti-Semitism. And it's going to be difficult because, again, this is one of those issues that does not fall neatly on partisan lines. Certainly, it's the Republican Party that is more aligned on passing an anti-Semitism bill. But we see State Senator Ed Setzler, as well as some other Senators who are very concerned about this language and do not want this definition of anti-Semitism in state law and in Sanland by the Israel Israel Hamas war and by sympathizers to both sides who don't really want to have georgia getting involved in an international conflict and by (laughs) creating a definition of anti-semitism but then we also have all these incidents we've seen over the last couple of years of hateful flyers being distributed in jewish neighborhoods in Dunwoody and brookhaven and sandy springs and roswell and other communities um you know that's not illegal and the anti-semitism bill wouldn't necessarily prohibit but it does prohibit it but it does show that anti-semitism is a real problem.
0: Okay. Well, Mark, thank you so much. That is uh, That does seem to be a problem without a solution right now. We'll see if lawmakers can get to the bottom of that. And Mark, we'll be looking for your coverage of all of the other problems lawmakers may or may not be able to solve this time around. Um, Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: All right. Well, just ahead, we'll talk to two legislative leaders about the plans that Democrats have for the upcoming session. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC.
3: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com.
0: The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more. Plus access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. You can join our community now by going to ajc.com start. That's ajc.com start. So you always know what's really going on. Well, turning now, uh, to a couple of leaders from the legislature, Democrats are in the minority in the state house and state Senate, but they continue to push for democratic priorities and can help bipartisan efforts get across the finish line with the (coughs) 2024 session starting on Monday. We're happy to welcome state Senator Harold Jones, the Senate democratic whip from Augusta and state representative Sam Park, the pride of Chattahoochee high school, a top (laughs) leader for Democrats from the house, um, from Gwinnett. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us today.
5: Happy New Year. Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: Great. It's great to have you both. Um, Senator Jones, let's start with you. Um, We have people asking us uh, really all the time, Uh, Because Democrats are in the minority, what can they really do? What kind of legislation can they bring? How can they influence legislation? Certainly you are a frequent participant um, in your committee hearings. We see you making all kinds of arguments for and against the legislation that Republicans are bringing down. But tell us a little bit about Democrats' priorities for this session coming up. Okay, you know what? We're going to move on to Representative Sam Park. We're going to try and get Senator Jen's audio back. Um, in the meantime, Representative Park, will give you the same question, but on the House side. Tell us a little bit about the Democrat, Democratic parties over on the House side that y'all are going to be working on.
5: Sure. So I'll, I'll um, again thank you for having me. Um, I'll name three big buckets of issues in which we're going to be working on. First is healthcare. Um, you know, Georgia, unfortunately, there's a lot of great things, but um, when it comes to health care, there's um, a lot of room for improvement. So we'll be doing everything possible to do to expand access to health care as well as uh, for mental health care. And that would certainly require bipartisan support. Second would be education. Of course, we had the big debate over the voucher bills uh, last year. Uh, but for Democrats, it's an absolutely critical priority to protect public education and expand access to higher education, uh, certainly when it comes to providing um, access to training to ensure that we have a skilled workforce. Lastly, it'll be safety. Um, Everybody wants safe communities, but for Democrats, um, gun safety in particular will be uh, a top priority for us during the 24 legislative session.
1: Uh, Representative Park, while we have you on this issue, uh, one of the biggest questions I'm watching at the legislature, and we've talked about this issue for more than a decade now, but the potential expansion of Medicaid, I've been reluctant to ever say that there is a there's movement towards an expansion because, frankly, because Republican leaders have either told me publicly or privately there's not an opening. This year feels a little bit different. I'm not getting that word either publicly or privately from GOP leaders that that it's off the table. I'm wondering. Do you, are you optimistic? Do you think there's there's an opening towards a grand bargain per se between lawmakers over you know reform or changes or overhaul of the certificate of need program in exchange for uh, some sort of expansion of Medicaid?
5: I'm, I'm always optimistic, especially when it comes to opportunities to expand Medicaid, because it's the right thing to do. You know, 40 other states have already expanded Medicaid. Uh, they've covered their uninsured population um, and essentially the program's helped paid for itself by drawing down billions of federal dollars. As for whether or not there's an opportunity for a grand bargain, um, you know, I certainly recognize that uh, while there is an opportunity, um, you know, our leaders on both sides, uh, Speaker Burns, as well as Lieutenant Governor uh, Jones, um, they're still relatively new um i greatly respect um speaker burns um but you know it, it's a challenge given the diverse uh, factions within each party uh to try and navigate a big grand uh compromise but at least uh from our end um, on the democratic side uh, when it comes to medicaid expansion we'll be doing everything possible uh, to try and you know get that across the finish line this year.
2: Representative Park, um, let me uh, uh, ask another question about that, if I may. What we're hearing, of course, is that it's possible there could be a deal struck that uh, certainly the lieutenant governor would probably uh, want to uh, uh, support, which would be eliminate certificates of need in exchange for a broad expansion of Medicaid. Now, I know certificates of need are a complicated issue. But there has been a reason why they're in place. They have, over the years, prevented major health institutions from kind of overwhelming smaller, say, hospitals or other medical facilities um, and taking them over. So there are arguments on both sides of certificates of need. But my question really comes down to, do you think Democrats would support that kind of compromise?
5: I I, at least right now personally I would be somewhat uncomfortable with completely abolishing certificate of need. I would be open to certain reforms, Um, and so there. In you know, devil is always in the details. Of course, Uh, in my district in Gwinnett County, the different. You know, despite the lines you know, changing significantly over the past few years, um, you know, I represent um, a Northside Gwinnett Hospital, um, which is one of the largest hospitals in Gwinnett County. And so they're certainly watching the debate regarding certificate of need very, very carefully. But um, I do understand and, and believe there's room for reform, uh, but not to completely do away with it. And so I think there's certainly room for compromise.
0: Uh, We've got Senator Harold Jones back with us on the line, and we're here talking to Senator Jones and Representative Sam Parks about Democratic priorities. So, Senator Jones, now that we've got you, we've heard about Mm -hmm. the House side Democrats' priorities. Tell us a little bit about what your caucus has planned for the session ahead.
6: I think one of the things, one of the the aspects you just spoke of, which is talking about certificate of need that are also tied together with Medicaid expansion, one of our key issues will be Medicaid expansion. And I think that's going to be very important, not necessarily to do a total overhaul of certificate of need. That's going to be a huge conversation next year. We have to continue to push for full Medicaid expansion. I think that's going to be one of our, it has been one of our first priorities and will continue to want to be our first priorities. Secondly, I think the other priority is going to be public education, which is always a priority that is there and we want to make sure that we continue to fully we want to make sure we continue fully fund public education fully fund pre-K at the same time we realize that sports betting will be a major issue that will be coming up and the details will be very important in that aspect as far as where the funds will actually go. So I think when you start talking about Medicaid expansion, that's number one, and then number two, we start talking about public education and making sure that we fully fund that, and then how does sports betting kind of tie into that particular issue as far as education is concerned. I think those are gonna be the two major pieces of conversation that are gonna be taking place, and I believe Democrats play a heavy role in basically both of those issues as far as the direction they can take.
1: Just like most legislative sessions, a lot of the debate will focus on Georgia's multi-billion dollar budget. So I have a question for both of you. Senator Jones first. Georgia has more than $16 billion in its reserves uh, when combined with the rainy day funds. So how, beyond expending Medicaid, because both of you have just Mm outlined how that's such a party. how how would you spend that money and how would you reserve it? I mean, how how much is a healthy reserve in your view and, and what would you do with the rest of that money?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Health Reserve is very important. There's no doubt about that. And I understand to some extent the governor's position as far as, like, not creating new programs. But I can tell you this. We need to make sure that we're funding the programs that are actually existing as far as especially our state employees are concerned. Number one, our state employees are leaving. And then number two, we really don't, we're really not funding those departments enough. We get so many phone calls, and I'm sure Representative Park gets the same. We get so many phone calls from persons who cannot get people on the line on all sorts of different agencies. When you're dealing with a people-intensive business, when you're talking about dealing things with d and Department of Human Services and, and areas like that, you have to have people there. You that's not going to take, be able to be handled. By basically just trying to do it, you know, through robocalls, so to speak, or just automatic calls. You have to have people who are actually helping people. That's one of the first aspects that I'd be looking at. So we realize that you want to make sure that you have that, quote, unquote, kind of rainy day fund or surplus there. But at the same time, you cannot continually not fund the programs that are actually in existence. That's first. And then secondly, let's determine whether there are some one-time type programs that also can be funded down the line, even if it does not necessarily Mm -hmm. put the state on the hook, for long-term programs. So first, let's make sure we're fully funding those agencies now, which is not being done because they come up all the time, and our constituents are telling us it's not being done. And then secondly, potentially one-time type of uh, funding programs that can take place, even if it doesn't put the state on the hook for long term. Uh, a long-term park?
5: basis representative park your view on that sure so i mean one i think you know we need to first examine kind of how we got to this budget surplus in the first place um, i think last year during the 23 session during appropriations hearing uh, they mentioned that the uh, turnover rate for state employees was uh 30 which is just incredibly high so as as whip jones mentioned i think ensuring that we are properly funding uh government services uh because we're a growing state right 70 uh, percent of our budget essentially goes to public education and health care and so as our state continues to grow you know i think you know we need to be approaching uh you know the the business of state government not like a business but as a nonprofit business in which we are investing taxpayer dollars into the people to to best provide for for their you know health and benefit we, we are here to serve them uh, two ideas that certainly come to mind which i don't think will move forward Um, But one would be to create a housing trust fund uh, with, uh, you know, again, the billions of surplus that we have. Um, And the other would be to create an early childhood education trust fund in which by setting aside, you know, even 500 million, a billion dollars, you know, we can create, um, you know, uh, support for these critical areas um, in which, again, it's a return on investment in which we can demonstrate that we are being good stewards of taxpayer dollars.
2: Representative Park, and then I'd love to hear from you, Senator Jones. Um, uh, School vouchers uh, have been on the wish list of many Republicans in the legislature for a very long time. Um, They've never been successful in gaining. There there have been programs that do, in fact, redirect some money uh, for uh, non-public schools. But for the most part, we don't have a full, robust program. But last session, It came all of a sudden toward the end of the session, really started picking up momentum. Governor Kemp uh, came on board late. Um, It did not uh, pass last session, but it's certain to come back this time. What are Democrats who primarily oppose school vouchers prepared to do to try to slow down this momentum?
5: So, you know, for for me, you know, my approach um, last year as the whip on the House side uh, was to, you know, demonstrate openness to my republican colleagues who understood that this voucher bill would harm their districts that it would take money from their school districts many in rural areas socioeconomically depressed areas and essentially take you know 150 200 million dollars into private schools mostly in and around the suburban uh, metro atlanta area and so you know my my objective is going to be to continue to work across the aisle with my republican colleagues uh, to work with organizations like the Georgia Association of Educators, the largest uh, you know, um, organization of public school educators, uh, to try and ensure that uh, we understand the facts and the implications of this legislation and ensure that every member, Republican and Democrat, uh, votes in the best interest of their district.
2: Senator Jones, how's that going to play in the Senate?
6: Well, we're going to try to do the same argument we did also last year, too. Public education is actually a good thing, and I think that's one of the first things that has to be mentioned. One of the first aspects of the conversation has to take place is we have an obligation to actually fund public education and not necessarily some of these voucher programs that are really not going to benefit the persons, whether it's in rural areas or even middle-of-the-road cities like Augusta, Georgia. And I think that's how you kind of um, attack that particular problem is to show these type of vouchers and especially the amount that's in there, that's not going to put anyone into a quote unquote better school. It's just going to take money away from schools, especially in place like Augusta or Savannah or even more rural areas. And as as Representative Park said, it's going to put them into more affluent schools, necessarily within the Metro Atlanta area. And those are just the facts of it. We would not have, we would we would not have students who would be able to take care of that, be able to um, basically uh, use those vouchers in Augusta for any real uh, real sense of of good to help them with their education, quite frankly. So that's the type of argument that we've also been made. As you mentioned, for some reason, it did seem like a push all of a sudden kind of happened. But I think we're going to be able to push back against that and start off with the principle that public education is a good product for us to actually have.
0: Representative Park, let's pick up on something that you mentioned earlier about gun safety. We wrote in our morning newsletter earlier this week that there was just (coughs) the tiniest Glimmer of a potential compromise on a narrow bill um, that's, that <laughs> Representative Al has pre filed, um, talking about tax credits for uh, the purchase of a gun, uh, gun case or gun locks, some way to secure. The um, the storage of guns in homes, um, that's particularly important to pediatricians who um, tell us quite a bit they're seeing too many kids come in through the ER who have had an accidental discharge of a gun. Um, we saw Georgia 2A come out and say that in principle, that is something that might actually work. They are somebody who, um, they're a group that typically opposes just about any Democratic measure on gun safety it, are you starting to see the conversation change even a little bit in terms of just the complete partisan gridlock that we've seen on that?
5: I think so. Um, yeah, first and foremost, I just want to give uh, the highest of praise to Representative Michelle Ao uh, who's just been, uh, you know, had, has this indomitable, indomitable spirit, particularly when it comes to public health and gun safety, uh, which, you know, as we all know, is, you know, the number one cause of death for children and teens in America, which is just you know unacceptable and important um but you know i think in part because of her persistence and resilience i know she's talked to many republican uh, legislators about this issue during the off session Um, and i'm very very glad to see that you know there is some of this gridlock on this issue beginning to break apart. I mean, I would also note that um, last year there was a group of uh, Republican women, I think from Buckhead, who were also wanting to see uh, gun safety legislation move forward. I think it's a reminder that, yes, there is still... Uh, common ground that we can find uh, even on an issue as uh, difficult and and potentially partisan as gun safety. And so hopefully we'll'll we'll, we'll see some uh, momentum and and you know hopefully we'll have a good win for the people of Georgia when it comes to gun safety this year.
0: Senator Jones, how about over on the Senate side that te- you'll tend to have a different relationship with Republicans than we're seeing uh, between Democrats and Republicans on the House side. Talk about any any potential movement on the gun issue.
6: I think it's going to always be difficult, quite frankly, but we're, we're hopeful. And one of the things is, you mentioned Representative Al's bill, you know, protection of children, safety is important. The key thing is, it's not necessarily the, the senators that you have to convince. It's going to also be the constituents that call, you know, and are, are so adamantly opposed to any type mm-hmm. of gun bill that takes place. So they really are going to have to have the courage. I think as far as the legislature is concerned in the Senate – the understanding is there that you need gun safety laws. That's there. The question is, are they going to have the courage to actually stand up and vote for something when it, if it actually comes up to a vote or actually push for it to come to a vote when they get those calls from a lot of those different groups who are adamantly opposed to anything dealing with guns? That's going to be the question for the, that they will have to answer. Do they have the courage to actually stand up for the children, stand up for gun safety in Georgia and stand up for all Georgia as far as that issue is concerned? It's a very limited bill, and that's going to be the issue that they're going to have to face when they get those calls that say nothing to do, that says you can't make any movement on guns, where well, they have the courage to say on this, at least in this narrow area, we do have the courage to actually stand up and fight for Georgians on this issue.
1: I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but one thing to always remember remember about the legislative session is it's rife with surprises. The big issue we're talking about in March is not always on the radar right now at this stage. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you both to make short predictions about what, issues you think could bubble up and become the major controversy at this time in in three months. Representative Park,
5: I'm going to put you on the hot seat first. Yeah, controversy in politics. Um, (laughs) Certainly nothing comes to mind. Uh, (laughs) This is a big election year, um, as we all know, and and Georgia will be uh, certainly in the thick of it all. Um, And so um, you know, well, it wouldn't surprise me if, if um, you know, something bubbles up, you know, as it pertains to our elections, uh, certainly as, as Democrats, I'm, uh, as a Democratic whip, I'm always concerned in terms of legislation that would make it harder to vote or that would manipulate the Democratic process in any way. Um, but, it, you know, I can certainly anticipate or see something like that, you know, popping up this year.
0: Senator Harold Jones, Representative Sam Park, thank you both so much for joining Politically Georgia today. We will see you both down at the state capitol on Monday. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having us.
0: All right. We want to let our audience know that we, of course, have requests into Republican leaders as well. We will get them on the show as soon as possible as the session is gaveling in to hear from Republicans about what their own priorities are, too. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. And guys, the presidential election season is finally about to get underway. I feel it's like that first scene of Frozen and they're talking about Coronation Day. Like for me it's election day. Don't and not get I'm those like, songs stuck in my I head. Spring though. out of that. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> it's too late now. Um, but so we've got the Iowa caucuses coming up on January fifteenth. That's a Monday. Everyone getting out their calendars. Then MLK Day, the same day. Hello, and also MLK Day. We're 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 gonna wonder how those ended up on the same day. Um, The New Hampshire primaries are happening the following week, and then Nevada, South Carolina, and all the other states follow after that. Georgia's presidential primary is March fifteenth. That's a week after Super Tuesday. So we'll uh, excuse me. Let me get out my own calendar. March twelfth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, March twelfth. Mark your calendars. Get ready to vote here in Georgia. The the contest may or may not already be yeah. over by then, but we'll know a whole lot more as this calendar gets underway. So, Bill. Yes. Joe Biden. That's not his first rodeo either. (laughs) However, these first contests are really focused on the Republicans. Democrats have changed their calendar to put South Carolina at the front of the line because that was Joe Biden's very favorite state. It really rescued his candidacy in 2020. But so we're starting off with Iowa, January 15th. And those are the Iowa caucuses, which I absolutely love covering. And I am going out to Des Moines a few days before the caucuses.
2: So... I, I've covered caucuses since 1984, so um, I am envious of both you, Greg, and Tia, who are going to be out there on the road quite a bit. Um, my role in this year's election is going to be to kind of hold down the Anchoring, fort yes. here, but here's what's interesting to me. I always thought I mean the Iowa caucuses are are fascinating uh, because it means people getting together, as you well know, in school classrooms or in, you know, gymnasiums somewhere, churches, or whatever, and then literally having to move to parts of the room that are designated for Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Hilliard. Mm-hmm. But why do you I'm interested in your finding him so fascinating? I always felt like I couldn't wait to get to New Hampshire, where they really had elections. (laughs) Oh,
0: come on. This is Americana at its best. And if you ever watch the West Wing, there's just nothing like those candidates trudging through the Iowa snows in January. Um, I've already bought my new down coat, Greg. (laughs) To be prepared and And New Hampshire doesn't have pizza ranch, you know? <laughs> but I'll tell you why I love the Iowa caucuses. And it's because for anybody who's never been to a caucus, it is so hands- on. It is literally democracy and action. Each candidate and or their uh, representative, goes to that same high school gym. All of the people from the precinct show up at 7 o'clock. There's no early or absentee voting in a caucus. You got to be there. You go there at 7 um, o'clock when it's time to start caucusing. And each campaign, the Donald Trump campaign will make its pitch. The Nikki Haley campaign will make its pitch. The Ron DeSantis campaign and the others, whoever is still on that ballot, will say, here's why I think you should come over to my side. And the voters literally go over to yeah. that corner yeah. of the gym yeah. or the schoolhouse classroom, and they join forces with that campaign. Some of those voters are undecided when they walk in the room. They're decided 45 minutes later because of those pitches. They've waited to hear those pitches. And so the Iowa electorate is so well-informed and so engaged and this is really the moment you watch it happen. It's not a secret ballot. You're not just dumping it in a box and running for cover. You have to sit there and I, make your case. I
2: think that's really, in fact, what is interesting about Iowa. I mean, You know, oh, by the way, Greg Bluestein, there may not be pizza ranches in New Hampshire, but there are Tim Hortons, and yeah. I'm always glad and to there get And there are Clinton. Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts. But in any case, okay, so you're right. Remember, we all know that the rules of any polling place in the country are you cannot campaign within a certain distance from the poll. I was the exact opposite. You walk into the room and you are going to be besieged by people trying to convince you to come to their corner of the room for that candidate. It's possible that that dynamic can change how the vote turns out although the Trump people claim as you know that this year they are really well organized. Remember they lost um, Iowa in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, But they claim this time around, they're really prepared to turn out their people.
0: I think they actually really are prepared. They've got precinct captains, they've got somebody already in place ready to make those arguments. The other campaigns have that as well. But the Trump campaign, Greg, I mean, they've already been to these Iowa caucuses twice. They've got those relationships with their precinct chairs, their county captains. Um, They really know their way around this state. And they definitely delivered in 2020, of course.
1: Yeah, there's a veteran Georgia operative named Brian Jack, who's right in the mm-hmm. middle of all the Trump campaign's preparations in Iowa right now. He also could be a candidate for Georgia's third district uh, congressional seat, by the way. Um, but we've already seen evidence of that because we've already seen, we've already heard from Trump campaign um, how they're lining up Georgians already now, mm-hmm. giving them auditoriums and public schools and other locations when they go up, and we're, there's going to be a uh, a number of prominent Georgia Republicans who go up and caucus directly for Donald Trump and for some of the other top contenders. And that's that's really where our coverage comes in, because, yes, you know, we will be covering the broad strokes of the presidential race, but we'll be doing it through a Georgia lens. And there's nothing like, you know, Bill, when you're talking about covering the caucuses, um, as important as they are, there's nothing like covering a caucus in Cedar Rapids when you're seeing for then Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms speak yeah. to a room of Iowans and quote Andre 3000. Right? I mean, there's just it, it, there's some some dramatic scenes that you, that you and Tia. I'm just very jealous, Patricia, that you and Tia. I know are about you to get, are. See, I know you are. <laughs> because it's so much fun. And then right after that, you'll have New Hampshire, which is so different, not just because it's a it's a primary related to a caucus, but because everything will be a very short distance away. Rather than driving four or five hours in some cases, there'll be 30 minute drives from one campaign event to another.
0: Yeah, you're also not going to accidentally go to Cedar Falls when you meant to go to Cedar Rapids. That's happened to the best of us. It's happened to the best of us. Me and Jamie Dupree have definitely done that (laughs) at least once. Um, Also in Iowa, we know that uh, Representative Scott Hilton from Gwinnett is going to be out there uh, making the case to Iowa voters for Nikki Haley. We know that uh, U.S. Representative Rich McCormick is going to be out there for uh, Governor DeSantis. So Georgians will be out there um, speaking to caucus goers, speaking to voters. We certainly expect Marjorie Taylor Greene to be out there for Donald Trump. Um, It's also a great chance for reporters and for those representatives to hear which arguments are really landing with voters. The Iowa voters have tuned in much earlier than Georgia voters at this point. They're getting all of these messages all the time. And Bill, they can start to hear what's important to this especially conservative swath of voters, What is Donald Trump saying that's working? What is Nikki Haley saying that is or isn't working? And they can really refine those messages to voters when they come back home to Georgia.
2: Right. Um, and they also um, will get a chance uh, to hear from the candidates. Uh, the victor in Iowa uh, will, of course, have a speech in which she or he will lay out a message they want to carry forward that will be resonated by the people we're talking about now, Georgians who are up there um, campaigning for him. I go back, I remember in 1992, one of the great moments was, you know, Bill Clinton was in big trouble in New Hampshire because of issues of womanizing. Jennifer Flowers was one of the people who came forward, accused him of having an affair with her. And when he did not win the New Hampshire primary, uh, James Carville his uh, top consultant who became famous because of that campaign uh, declared to all of us who were up there covering him, you know, uh, He's the comeback kid. And that was the message that Georgians like Zell Miller carried back to Georgia. He's the comeback kid. He wasn't. He had <laughs> lost New Hampshire, and yet it propelled him forward. And we'll hear that sort of thing happening from candidates who uh, win or come in, in you hope. Know, in Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis' case, second.
0: Yeah, and Greg, these caucuses and um, the New Hampshire primary are also a great reminder that repo- reporters do don't know what's going to happen. No. There are surprises that come out. Rick Santorum was definitely not supposed to win the <laughs> Iowa caucuses in 2008. This will be my fifth presidential campaign to cover, and I covered Rick Santorum mm. and his woolly sweater vest that start, <laughs> got a got a Twitter feed of its own. He, some of these candidates just catch fire when they're in these smaller communities, and but that those smaller communities that support can propel them forward for sure, but, but we don't know what's going to
1: happen. We don't. And four years ago, people were ready to write off Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, after a disappointing showing in Iowa, and then he even left New Hampshire before that primary to, to stake it all on South Carolina. It was such a big moment. I remember I was in a a, a, a cafe in Nashua, New Hampshire, when Joe Biden just happened upon it. Uh, it was right before he jetted to, uh, to, to South Carolina. And Patricia, that's another point, too, because not only do we not know what's happening, but these, these results do provide clues for where Georgia voters end up, and to, a, to a degree. The Iowa Republican electorate is generally reflective of Georgia Republicans, and the South Carolina Democratic electorate is generally reflective of where Democrats line up. And when we do get to the South Carolina primary in, in, in February, um, the action's right next door. You know, Georgians will be able to just drive a couple hours to be able to see their favorite or their least favorite candidates in effect. And, and trust me, it won't just be Republicans, we're already seeing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris go down to South Carolina. Uh, President Biden will be there this week.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're going to have all <clears throat> of that coverage, um, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, will be obviously in South Carolina, and um, also uh, Bill, the two conventions. We're just we're just barely beginning to sketch that out, but we plan to really be. Yeah, Milwaukee in this and
2: my hometown, Chicago. Well, hello, Chicago. Very <laughs> excited about about that. By the way, people really need to read your column today, in which you talk about the surprises that the Iowa caucus particularly can sometimes spring on all of us who think we know so much about politics. That's exactly we think we know
0: so much. And then voters will surprise us because they actually uh, they know, know what they want. They know who they're planning on voting for. And I will say, an eye opening moment for me in New Hampshire, even though, or because that's a more moderate electorate, seeing Donald Trump pack, I mean, pack hall what? after hall after hall in 2016, that told me that this guy's really really got some legs and that was when and then he just came barreling out of there down down to South Carolina and the rest is history I will say well if you have a question for the show you can call the politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime leave a question and we'll answer it during tomorrow's listener mailbag segment the number is 404-526-AJCP That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please give us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution.
3: Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet,